Welcome to the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast, where educators come together to discuss their journey on the road to financial independence. Now, please join our co-host, Dave and Brandon, as they prepare to help other educators get fit with their finances. Welcome and thanks for joining us on episode 89 of the Financially Independent Teachers Podcast. If you think your story can help other educators and you'd be willing to come on the show, please shoot me an email at getfiteducator at gmail.com. And I just want to send a reminder out there that next Sunday on November 20th, we will be hosting a basics. Well, I guess it's not next Sunday, but uh, in a few Sundays, we'll be hosting a basics of investing workshop. And it is a beginner's class. We're going to break down investing at an elementary level. It'll be about a 90-minute workshop. And if you feel like you were never taught the basics of how the market works, we will try to get you as comfortable as possible, all with the heart of a teacher coach. Things are busy, man. We uh, just had a North Carolina teacher workshop. We are getting ready for the investment workshop, and you are wrapping up football season. How are things going there at Pamlico County High School? Things are going well. Uh, yeah, football season's winding down. We've got uh, the playoffs starting this week in North Carolina. So the, pl- the state playoffs are, are kicking off this Friday night. And uh, so all the kids are excited about that. And we're at that place, and, and all the teachers out there know exactly what I'm talking about. We, we, we're finishing up. If you're on a nine-week schedule, we're finishing up with that first nine weeks. And it's starting to get to that, you know, that, uh, that grind before Thanksgiving break. And the next couple of weeks, I've always found are, are a little difficult. Not quite like go, going into spring break later, but these, these, these next few weeks are always a little tough. So we're, we're starting to experience the grind a little bit here at Pamlico County High School. Yeah, I think I saw something recently that they said statistically the last two weeks of October and the first two weeks of November have the most referral write-ups out of any time during the school year. So really, I would have if, if I would have had to guess, I would have guessed March right before spring break when spring fever starts to set in because that seems to be, but, but yeah, it's a similar situation though. Like you're, 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 you haven't had a break and you know, the kids and, and it's like, as teachers, we're like pulling up hills. Like I've got, they're all sitting on like a sled, you know, like 28 of them. And I've got it over my shoulder with a rope and I'm trying to pull them uphill. And, you know, so that, that's tough. kind of the, that's the best way I can describe it to those that don't teach. Yeah, the hardest thing right now for me is my first period. They are so exhausted. Our first period starts at 7.13 in the morning. So when you have a bunch of 14, 15, and 16-year-olds at 7.13 in the morning, it's kind of hard to get them motivated. So my lesson plan for first period might be a little bit different than second and third period. Just have to use a different strategy to get them going. So You've got to turn on that entertainment thing. You know, you, you've got to become an entertainer at that point, man. You got to be a stand-up comedian. You got to get those kids laughing. I, I try to do that. I try to roast them a little bit. Maybe if I re- really want everybody to take a nap, I'll put the podcast on. We can all take a nap together. <laughs> but uh, anyway, go. coach, let's get this thing rolling here. We've got an awesome guest today. We've got Allison from Kentucky and we've met a few people. We've had some of them on our show that have gone from being an educator in the school system. And then they caught, you know, whatever wave of personal finance. A lot of it was like the choose FI movement and financial independence movement. And they decided, man, I love it so much. I'm going to get out and I'm going to be an investment advisor. So, you know, Justin Garrett, David Gurley, those are a few people that have done the opposite. But our guest today, Coach Allison, actually was an investment advisor and has gone into the classroom. As it turns out, that road runs both ways. 
uh, we, we do have an example of someone who has said, you know what, forget this financial planning stuff. I'm headed to the classroom. And I'm really interested to hear all about how that happened, how that decision was made. And, and the story, my understanding is, is that she has an outstanding story and I really can't wait to get into it. All right. Well, let's, let's get into it right now. Welcome, Allison. How are you doing? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks so much for having me tonight. Well, we appreciate you coming on. Let's go right to that story. Uh, we're going to get into your background a little bit and talk about marital status and family life and what you teach. But let's talk about your your career in the investment world. What exactly did you do? How long were you in it? And what made you think, I want to go teach kids? Um, it was clearly for this income that I said <laughs> that I wanted to quit. No. So as you mentioned, <laughs> yeah, you knew it. Um, as you mentioned, it's probably not the most common path. So I uh, became an investor at the age of 20. So I was series six, seven, and 63 licensed. And part of it was I was, um, <clears throat> I don't know, I've always been around investing because my dad, even though he's a retired physician, he's kind of obsessed with all things to do with the stock market. So like when I was a little girl, we used to sit there watching nightly business reports and he would quiz me on the ticker tape and everything else. And I was the only one who could tolerate him doing those things. So I think I was kind of brainwashed, but <laughs> in, a, in a good way. And so the um, financial path was kind of a natural for me. The thing is, is that I went and I down this financial road and I'm always been interested in like breaking down a portfolio, thinking about what might be better, uh, those sorts of things. But I'm not a salesperson. And so the sales part of the job, especially when you're a beginning investment representative at 20, it's a lot of the sales aspect and not so much the portfolio education aspect. Um, and so, you know, I sat around and like at 22, I met all of my target goals that the company that I worked for had set for me, but I was really unhappy. And I'm like, how can I hate my career at 22? I should not be hating my career at this age. And so um, I really, you know, thought about what is it that I like? And actually, my secretary is the one who said, you seem to really like teaching. And I'm like, ah, no, I would never do that. And then I started thinking about her comment a lot more. And I was like, oh yeah, when I'm leading workshops for my clients and, or when I have them in the office and I'm trying to explain things, that's when I'm kind of my happiest. Um, not, not the things that necessarily directly make you much money as a beginning investment rep. And so that's how my path to teaching began was that way. So now I primarily teach geography because that makes sense, right? But <laughs> I also do have some personal finance classes at our school that I teach as well. Oh, that's great. So you get to, you still get to, to dabble in personal finance education. And, and I'm sure that is a great, you know, um, feather in your cap, so to speak. I guess that's the right, the right analogy or whatever. I, you, you, in other words, you've got some credibility with the kids, right? Um, because you've come from that world. And, and so I would think that the kids would be really tuned in when you're speaking about that. It does help. Um, it also has allowed me because of 
you know, my original degree path and everything, I'm able to offer our personal finance course as a dual credit course. And so, you know, the kids are attracted to that as, as well, but, but yeah, so, you know, I've, I've been there. Some of the kids that I teach are interested in going into a financial services related career. And so, um, yeah, I can, I can tell them in my view, in my experience, the pros and cons, but yeah, it does seem to resonate with a lot of them. I was just going to ask you that in North Carolina, we became one of the states, I think we're up to maybe 15 now that are going to require a personal finance class for graduation. I feel like the students are very thirsty for this information. What are you seeing in your school? Are you seeing the kids get this? And maybe what are some of the wins that you've seen in your classroom? Maybe those light bulb moments. What are some of the most successful things you've seen your kids do? Yeah, unfortunately, my state doesn't have it as a requirement. So I just teach a couple sections of it and we just started teaching it three years ago. But uh, and so most of those have been, of course, the impacts of COVID and online teaching and all of that fun stuff. But with the kids, I definitely see that. What has been interesting to me is I don't just get kids whose parents have really pushed them into the course. I get kids, as you stated, that are just hungry for knowledge and maybe don't want to go down the path that perhaps their parents have. And they see those sorts of mistakes around them and they want something different. And so I mainly teach the class to seniors, although I have juniors as well. This year, interestingly enough, I have two junior sons and I have both of them in class. They said they have to hear it enough. They might as well get credit for it. Uh, But, um, you know, it it does run the gamut in terms of like our typical student population. Like it's a very diverse and I'm not just speaking to ethnicity and race. I mean, socioeconomic background and interests in terms of what they plan on doing later in life. It's a really diverse group of kids. So how long have you been teaching now? Um, I started teaching in 2001. So this is your like 21. Yeah, I was going to say, I I started teaching 9-11 as well. This was my 22nd year right here. I completed 21 last year. So we started at the same time. So, okay. Um, And when you got into this, were you... Was it something to think about in terms of the pay? Because, you know, we're always told you can't make money as a teacher, you know, at least I was always sold that. And I, I have found that I'm not alone in believing the hype that teachers can't build wealth. It was a matter of fact, it wasn't until fairly recently for me that I realized, oh, teachers can actually build wealth. Teachers can do well with money. We might not be able to make a lot of mistakes, but, you know, if, if, we, if we're smart, we can make it happen. For you transitioning into the teaching profession, I mean, did, did you have people in your life that were like, are you kidding you know, you're not going to make any money or anything like that. Or did that, what, what did you do to overcome that mental obstacle or was it even an obstacle? Oh, absolutely. The word crazy was used with my name a whole lot, um, including, you know, my regional leaders and things like that. They're like, but you're doing well. I don't understand. And I'm like, but I'm, I'm not happy. And the money alone isn't what drives me. And so I'm, I'm a teacher who's annoyed by when people talk about like, oh, teaching being a calling because it's my profession. So it's, you know, you can't use the fact that this is something I like as a reason to use and abuse me, as sometimes we see happen. Um, but it is, it is a passion of mine. It's something that I really, truly enjoy. Uh, as far as the pay, so I'm fortunate enough within Kentucky to teach in the district that's an urban district and does have um, 
a teacher's union has resulted in more favorable outcomes in terms of salaries. But still, obviously, compared to um, my earnings, especially my earnings potential that I had had I stayed in the business, you know, it's nothing. But what I've done to compensate for that is, you know, to, to have those high earnings as an investment professional, you you have to work a lot of hours. And obviously, teachers work a lot of hours as well. But I've made... Um, several side gigs where I'm, I'm doing work, I'm doing work for additional work for additional pay, but it's also work that then I can still use in my own classroom with my own students and things that I'm passionate about. So that's really helped in terms of the salary differential. So what exactly does that look like with uh, the side hustles that you've got going on? So um, I do some work with, um, so a couple different international groups. So more specifically, South Korea is really big on geography education in the United States, which I won't deviate too much into, but that's an interesting story in and of itself. And so I've been involved in um, producing curriculum material for teachers related to geography education. And again, I teach geography, so those are materials that then I can turn around and I've developed and I can use in my own classroom. So essentially I'm getting paid for my a lot of my lesson planning. Um, the other thing that I've done is I do teach advanced placement human geography. So I've been involved in leadership uh, levels at like the AP reading and that sort of thing. And although that itself doesn't really garner much additional pay, it opens up a lot of other opportunities. Uh, and so, you know, if you have high positions within an AP subject, then that adds credibility to your name in terms of presenting professional development in other districts, which I um, often do during the summer and things like that. I'm so glad that you said that. We We are uh, Dave, I guess it's okay if I say this, you know, we're, we're, yeah. we're polishing up the fit position right now, which is, you know, a book that Dave and I are writing about basically, you know, the patterns that we've seen among our guests when it comes to teachers and middle income earners winning with money and, and, you know, be frugal, you know, be fearless and be a lifelong learner seem to be the three imperatives. And it is, it, it is it always happens this way. If if you get your if you put yourself out there and you get involved and you do things, it, it lends credibility to your name and it opens up doors of opportunity. And it sounds like you have been the recipient of some of that where you, you, these door, you know, with the with the educate with the um, what do you say, South Korea? Yes, you know, not North. You're not in danger. Yeah, you're not doing it. It would not be North Korea. North Korea would not be interested in that material, I'm sure. But South Korea would be, and that's where you're. Yes. That's where you're. Um, be able to sort of peddle your lesson plans. Uh, uh, for for lack of a better word, and you're able to, you know, do presentations and, and it's because you've put yourself out there and you've you've been able to, uh, run into these opportunities, and that's what happens to lifelong learners. This happens all the time, and I think sometimes as teachers we we lock ourselves in our classrooms and we're hyper-focused on our teaching maybe, and we're passionate about what we're doing, but then we don't push our way outside the door sometimes and, and get involved in other, other possible opportunities uh, that open doors and make connections and all those kinds of things. So that is, I'm really glad that you said that, that really kind of hammers home a point that we were just talking about today, actually. Well, and I do think, you know, putting yourself out there and then also I've had teachers in my own building question like, okay, you're doing so much other stuff. Does that harm then like your ability to perform at a high level in the classroom? And I think that 
every experience I can have outside the classroom, especially with related content, actually enhances what I'm able to bring to my students. And, you know, you mentioned something in terms of traits, and one was frugal. Um, I think there is a difference, too. So as a teacher, if we think about lifestyle that people expect me to live, um, as a teacher, until recently, I was driving my Honda Pilot with over 200,000 miles. No one thought, oh, she must not be a very successful teacher. On the right. other hand, if I had stayed in the, as an investment professional and I was driving that same vehicle, they'd be like, oh, she must not be very successful. And so I think that that's part of it, too, is that, yes, I my earnings, even with the extra pay, are less than I would have had I stayed in the financial services industry. However, the lifestyle expectations are lower as well. <laughs> um, and so I think that makes a big difference in terms of pressures of spending and that sort of thing. Yeah, everybody's expecting the teacher to be driving the, the vehicle that's 15 <laughs> years old, that has 200,000 plus miles on it. Well, hey, these two guys are the same ones. We're doing the same thing, right, coach? Hey, as a matter of fact, we wear it as a badge of honor. You know, I've got, I've got my 2011 Mazda CX-7, bought it used, it's paid for, been paid for for a long time. And I mean, that's a badge of honor for the teaching profession. Nobody expects us to drive. And, you know, the, the, you know, the Ramsey group, you know, they did that big, you know, survey of all those millionaires. And mm -hmm. I think it was the biggest one ever done. And the third most represented profession right behind engineers and accountants was the teaching profession. And I mean, how did the teaching profession produce so many net worth millionaires? Well, uh, you know, I think one of the things is what you just said. I think it's because nobody expects us to live a lifestyle that's beyond our means. And so, you know, there's all these teachers out there living in 1,200 square foot homes and they're driving, you know, Mazda CX-7s that are 15 years old. And they're just slowly but surely putting money away into their Roth IRAs and their 403Bs. And they're, you know, they're, they're, they're working side hustles with the extra time they have. And the next thing you know, 20 years goes by and they're, they're net worth millionaires. And um, they're just smart and slow and steady. So I think one of the fun things on the show is being able to meet people. I think this is our first one from Kentucky, Coach, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. So I think listeners enjoy hearing, okay, well, how much does someone in that state make or that district? Where does it start out? And, and what is maybe the top end of that scale? And another thing that I'm always interested in is how does the pension work in that state? So I feel very fortunate. North Carolina has pros and cons like any other state. And I've mentioned on the show many times before that one of the perks that I like is that at 50 years old, I can actually draw on my pension and, you know, basically get paid, you know, probably 25 to $2,700 every month, the rest of my life and collect health insurance. The last guest that we just had on from the Chicago suburbs, uh, they're in a tier two group in their, in their state and in their district. And I think coach, they said they can't even collect their pension until 67 years old. So interested to kind of hear what the salary stuff looks like where you're at. And if you're familiar with how the pension works, when can you draw on it? And is it a quality pension? Well, as a teacher who has gone through COVID and online teaching, I'm definitely familiar with the pension because <laughs> we all look at those options, right? So there was a time where I was questioning this, but now I'm not again. Um, so in, where I am, the pay scale starts out um, at about 43000 And so a beginning teacher will make around 43000 um, That's a beginning 
teacher with a bachelor's degree. Um, so we have steps and then we also have ranks. So the ranks range from your bachelor's to your doctorate. And uh, the pay scale goes stepwise to 25. So since you start at step zero, that's essentially 26 years. And then you can teach longer than that. Um, and actually pension wise, you kind of have to, which I'll talk about in a second, uh, but you're, you're, you're capped essentially there. So currently, um, if I was at step 25, um, which I'm not, partially, I also lose two years from teaching out of state. So I had a little stint out of state in the middle. Um, so, but if I was at 25, step 25, and if I have my doctorate, which I don't, I'm going to be forever ABD. I did not do the dissertation, nor am I, but I would max out at 87,000. What would a bachelor's teacher max out at at uh, the 25? Really close to 73,000. 73,000. Okay. So very similar on the bottom end. It's very similar to North Carolina on the bottom end, but it, you not so much on the top end. Our, our top end is, is, is substantially lower than that. Yeah. Yeah. And so I am, um, you know, I'm in Louisville, so I'm in an urban area. And again, with um, a strong teachers group, it's amongst strong teachers union. So uh, that's part of the reason for our steps and everything being a bit better than even most surrounding, even than the surrounding counties. As far as the pension, so essentially it's, you need to teach until 55 or 27 years. And that 27 years needs to be within the Kentucky system. So I taught for, in West Virginia for two years, essentially as I get those as far as the steps, but I don't get that in terms of pension credit. And I actually taught at a private school in West Virginia. So I can't, I don't really even have the option to purchase service credits or anything like that. Um, you're penalized though, if you don't do both of those things. So teach 27, have 27 years of credits and be 55. Um, and so like, for instance, I'll qualify to retire in terms of years of service at 52, but it, it would be to my benefit in terms of the pension to wait until I'm also 55. Okay. Gotcha. Okay. Yep. That's not bad. No, now one difference, and I'm not sure how it is in North Carolina, but um, you know, I, what I would love to do is I would love to do a, a lump sum distribution and a rollover. Um, and I can do that, but I only get my contributions plus essentially the equivalent to what you would get in bank interest, uh, no actual growth. And so, you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, questioning, gambling with that. And most people, it is very rare to do that within um, our system. It's not even listed as an actual option. So you could potentially in Kentucky take a lump sum, let's say that you had contributed $150,000 instead mm -hmm. of getting that monthly pension, you could just have total mm -hmm. control of it and roll it into an IRA or a 401k or 403 or something like that. Correct. Yeah. That, there's a lot of arguments in the teacher world. Um, we had Emily from New York and, and I'd love to get her on. We're thinking about doing a show where we have a discussion. I was going to say a debate or argument, but it's a discussion <laughs> over, would you rather have a teacher pension or would you rather have a 401k match? What would your opinion be? Would you rather have the pension where it's the guaranteed or would you rather have that 401k match and have maybe more movement 
I would um, much rather have a 401k match. However, I will probably not take the lump sum option in this case because they've essentially severed my possibility of much growth along the way. So again, I'm, you know, I'm putting in a lot um, automatically because it's required, of course, and I get almost nothing on top of that. Um, and so it's like I've lost the growth of 27 years. And so as a result, my plan is to probably just take the conventional pension payment, the defined benefit, um, and live on, on that as my basis, and then do my extra fun stuff. And of course, have potentially some wealth to leave to my kids and that sort of thing with my side investments. Nice. Okay. So I want to back up just a little bit here, because one of the things that we always ask about, or we, we generally ask about, we don't always, but generally, it, and, but I think it's the thing that our listeners are probably most um, concerned with or, or, or most interested in, and that is our budget, you know, the way that we budget. I, I've been, I know me personally, I've been largely unsatisfied with a lot of the answers because I was expecting all these people that are winning with money to have these really great budget plans and all that, but I have found that that's not always the case, that I actually think people probably that are doing well with money could actually be doing even better if they budgeted better, but um, I, I do understand there's, you know, as you move through, you know, it, it, you almost become lackadaisical with that, that part of it. But I would love to know about your budgeting. But before we get to that, maybe talk a little bit about your family situation and, and all of that, because that would probably lead itself into the budget conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Because like everyone, but more dramatically than perhaps some people, my budget has changed a whole lot over time. So I am divorced, but remarried. And the great thing is, is that my husband and I are very much on the same page financially in terms of our philosophies. And of course, we know that that's a huge stressor, stressor in terms of marriages. And so we really don't have that stress um, because we're just lockstep there. Um, my husband is a firefighter, so he actually is in the pension system as well, which also is kind of more nerve wracking because we're both in that essentially in the end, same pension system. Technically it's, you know, two sub buckets within one larger bucket. So we're not in the same sub bucket. All right. But overall we're in the, that same system. And actually uh, my husband retired last year as a full-time firefighter at 49 because their system works differently and with hazardous duty, 20 years of service. And he had more than that he could retire with his uh, full pension. And the amazing thing that's a really big budget relief for us is that because he retired as a firefighter for so many years, with the option that we took with his pension, which had a survivorship benefit, so I would get like a third uh, if something happens to him, uh, we also are covered in terms of healthcare insurance. And so that's huge. <laughs> and we recognize that that's amazing. Uh, in terms of rest of my family, as far as at home, we still have uh, two teenage sons, 16 and 17, both juniors in high school. So that's fun with colleges, searching and things like that right now and thinking about that. But that's kind of in general my family situation. So how long have you been married? So Tom and I have been married for just three years three years, were, were these big conversations that you had? Uh, you know, I don't know how long you dated or how long you want to get into this. I'm not trying to turn it into, uh, 
you know, Dr. <laughs> Phil or anything like that. But, you know, I think we have a lot of listeners out there who've been married and they're divorced. And, you know, I tell my wife and my wife, like we talk about it sometimes that we're so thankful that we're not in the dating world these days, because it's hard enough to find someone that you're actually compatible with spiritually and just get along with. And then when you Absolutely. add in the whole financial aspect to it, right. you know, it, it seems like it's almost impossible. So and kids, yeah, you add <laughs> combining kids families. It's so yeah, you're blending two different styles. So was was the financial stuff? Was that obviously you're a personal finance teacher? You're a former financial advisor or a professional? Well, Were those you know you would you would think that would make a difference? Um, but I but previously I didn't ask those questions or things like that ahead of time, um, even though intellectually, I knew to do so, you know, there's still a gap there, right? Between what we actually do versus what we know we should do, you know, do what I say, not as I do. Um, But Tom and I did have those conversations and we did have them early on. um, And essentially we came from similar situations in terms of our previous relationship and where we weren't the spenders, but perhaps the other party was more of a spender and desiring to have more uh, control and financial security and also um, valuing um, also valuing the fact that um, we don't, you know, we don't like debt. All right. Um, so that's the, we did have those conversations actually really early on. <laughs> Maybe too early looking back, but it was. He rolled up to pick you up on the first date, and you're like, "Do you have a car payment on this thing?" Well, he has a Dodge Ram with 280,000 miles, so I was pretty confident that he didn't have a car payment. Or if he did on that, by that point, it would have probably been over. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely, definitely. So the two of you come together, and and you sit down at some point, and you're talking about what your budget's going to look like, and I'm guessing that. That was a pretty easy conversation because it sounds like you guys, you know, to use your words, you were in lockstep. That's probably a pretty easy conversation. But did you guys decide, look, we're going to try to live on one person's pay and invest the rest or, you know, what, what? And then when it comes to your budget, could you just talk just a little bit about how much you spend at the grocery store a month? You know, um, you know, what are some of the other line items? What kind of a budgeting system do you work? All of those kinds of questions that I think the average person who's just getting started in this, they really wonder about. So um, when uh, when we started having budget conversations and had uh, kind of determined that we would enter into a longer term commitment and marriage, um, which I said I'd never get married again, and then he, he ruined that plan, but it worked out well still. <laughs> um, so he um, he ended up. I don't know. I don't remember when the first conversation this of this nature happened, but I said. I'm confident that we can have a savings rate of at least 50%. And I had done some projections and things and he thought I was crazy. Um, and, and I was like, no, no, we can do this. And without really it being truly a sacrifice, uh, you know, we had both been living just on our own incomes, right? And so combining households from single incomes, I mean, that was that was actually huge. So like one of the things that we were able to do once we got married is we had his house and her house. Uh, well, we found, we found their house and we sold both other houses and uh, were able to pay enough down on the house so that um, within 
I think it was 14 months that we had our mortgage. And so we, we have our house paid off and everything too, because when, you know, we got our finances together separately first. And I think that that's something important. Like we didn't, we didn't come into the relationship with um, a big burden in terms of finances. Like we kind of worked on ourselves individually on a a number of things, including finances. And so as a result, since we both had a strong savings sort of mentality and we're pretty frugal and, you know, both doing side gigs and things like that, um, we were able to both build significant equity into our homes before we got married and decided to buy a home together. And so that was part of it. In terms of line items for budgets, so I love spreadsheets, which is one of the things that Tom makes fun of me for. Um, but I love I love me some spreadsheets. And I use you had mentioned Ramsey earlier. I use zero dollar budgeting. You know, in terms of my philosophy, like give every dollar an assignment, uh, end up with zero ultimately in your budget. But you mentioned specifically grocery budget. Now I'm told you I have two teenage boys, right? <laughs> and so, um, you know, the grocery budget is is one of the probably uh, areas that I keep having to grow, right? And be willing to spend more because they are athletes too. They're both athletes, and they both work out a lot. And they're 16 and 17 and they just eat a whole lot. So our current grocery budget, I set mine up on a um, bi-weekly basis as opposed to strictly monthly. Um, And so I do that um, as a bi-weekly basis for everything. So like monthly bills, I just divide essentially. So bi-weekly, we actually spend about 300, uh, our budget is $375. Okay. Well, that's, that's kind of in the ballpark with you, Dave. That's what, that's kind of what you and Stephanie do, but I mean, pretty close. You guys do what? 600 a month for a family. Yeah, We uh, we were doing 600, but with uh, the inflation of the last year, we've actually bumped up to 800. Just noticed that it seemed like every time we went to the grocery store, you know, it was an extra 40 or $50 more than usual. So we just went ahead and and bumped up. Um, We use the the envelope system still. We've been doing it for about a decade and and our envelopes are about $2,000 a month now, which of course doesn't include insurance or mortgage or things like that. Do you know how much your family spends on average per year? I know you're the spreadsheet queen over there. I thought maybe you had that. It'd be interesting to see how much you guys spend in a year. Um, Ballpark at least. I can can multiply it out with a little bit of math and give you a ballpark. I didn't tell you it was going to be this hard that we're going to be. I know you didn't tell me I was going to have to do math. Did I mention I teach geography mainly? Social studies teachers aren't supposed to be doing this, right? (laughs) Um, So let's see. So obviously with spending in my budget, I include retirement actually as part of spending, but I won't include that for these purposes. Um, Actual spending, um, we live on right about $30,000. That is uh, really good. That's really, so, you know, when we talk about being frugal, you know, I think some people would listen to that and and really be flabbergasted because I, you know, I I talked to somebody just yesterday, in fact, and we were talking about grocery bills and she said that their family of four is spending like $1,200 a month on groceries. And I said, how would you feel if I told you that you're spending twice what you should be spending on groceries? And she goes, I would say, show me how to spend less. 
And I was like, you need to start buying rice and beans, eggs and potatoes because <laughs> you are spending way too much money. But it, yeah. But I think, you know, what, what she said that I thought was interesting was that they go to the grocery store on Sundays, but then they also make two or three more trips during the week. And I said, see, that tells me that you're not really planning your meals out because if you're having to constantly mm -hmm. go back, every time you go back, you're making more purchases that you shouldn't be making. Like you might be going to get flour or whatever, but you're picking up a bag of chips away cookies and you're also picking up, you know, like something in the, uh, and, and you're just making all these purchases. And what's happening is it's, you're growing. Why don't you just plan it out so that you only go to the grocery store once a week? And she said, oh, well, I think I could probably do that. I said, I bet you if you planned out all your meals and you only went to the grocery store once a week, I bet you could cut that by $300 minimum. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I'm a menu planner. Now, let me give you a couple realistic caveats about my budget. First of all, in terms of groceries, my grocery bill would be higher, but both of my boys recently have started jobs at Chick-fil-A and they, they eat there too. All right. So they get the meal credits there. And so is that a food too. hack? We've talked about house hacking, but we've never yes. food if hack. If you have a teen boy, have them get a job somewhere where they can also eat. Now they'll still eat at home, but not quite as much. Um, because you know, my kids eat like, I don't know how many meals a day they'll consider huge meals, like a small snack. And I'm like, okay. Um, and so, yeah, that, that seriously has helped my budget. All right. So that's one caveat is my grocery bill would be more, um, but not as high as what you were talking about. But you still have um, two teenage boys that are athletes. I mean, there's, yes. I know people that have, you know, two-year-old kids and they're spending $1,200 a month on groceries for two adults and the two-year-old. So yes. kudos on that. <laughs> Well, and I do menu plan and actually uh, my 17 year old helps me menu plan because it's something that he's, he's very interested in like health and fitness and the human body and obviously food too. Uh, so he actually oftentimes helps meal plan and even better. He sometimes helps cook and my husband cooks too. Cause you know, firefighters rotate yeah. at least at the house he was cooking. So that's one caveat as with the groceries. Um, another caveat is remember with that budget, I told you in terms of spending, we don't have a house payment. So the only thing I'm paying in terms of housing is, of course, insurance for our home and then also property taxes. So that's that's another thing. The second thing is, or I don't know if this is second. I lost count. You're up to See, the third. You, made me do, you made me do math earlier and now I can't even count to three. <laughs> you're, up, you're up to the third. We, we got you. Yeah, number <laughs> three. <laughs> I was just seeing if you were paying attention. That was it. All right. It was that teaching strategy there is I cheat a little bit with my budget. And that is there's one um, kind of luxury want that I don't include in my budget. And that's travel. Um, so but what I do is I only travel on extra income. So I budget so much, like I budget our regular income, including some of our side gigs. And then anything that we earn above that um, and above what we're putting into retirement, um, that that's my travel. That, those are my travel funds. And so I had promised my oldest when he was about 10. He's a pretty good negotiator, by the way. He came up with this idea. And then I, you know, I'm a geography teacher, so I had to agree to it. He wanted me to take them to all 50 states before college. And so they have now visited 46 states as of fall break. Um, now, does that mean that visiting, does that mean you had to sleep in that state? Yes. Or people have different 
yes yeah no just pass-throughs definitely no airports that's totally cheating um but yeah and so you know what i did also is i combined this with one summer here here was how we gained a lot of states one summer i had a professional development opportunity and this has been quite some time ago but i had a professional development opportunity in california so we road tripped it to california um and we stayed in a different state each night and just kind of slowly made our way there then we were there for a week I enrolled the boys in a YMCA camp they wanted to go back every year and I was like uh this is a one-year deal okay um and then we road tripped it back obviously a different way again once every night so you know because of teaching I was able to be gone three and a half weeks and we we did get a lot of states that way. Now, of course, most recently we have the more expensive states left, like Hawaii was this past summer and things like that. But I only take money from our extra, extra income, if that makes sense. <laughs> yeah, that makes uh, for that travel. Sense. That makes absolute sense. And coach, there's so many teachers and, I, and I'm not trying to, you know, we are teachers, but you know, I view myself as a mentor. I've been doing this 17 years now and heck, I've got three or four teachers in our building that I've taught in class but I know that we have teachers in North Carolina, our high school um, in our county, a first year teacher makes 42,000 in our county. And I have these young teachers that are maybe in year four or five, they're making 45, 46,000. And they're spending on their own after taxes and whatnot, $35,000 a year. And they're not saving anything. So here we've got a family of four. And that's the excuse some people will use. They'll be like, oh, well, they have two incomes and you know she makes more money in her state and her husband's retired and he's making money. Well, yeah, maybe they're making a little more money, but you're still only spending 30000 Oh, well, their house is paid off. Well, even if you had a $1,500 a month house payment, that only takes your 30000 a year up to 48000 a year. Uh, and there are a lot of teachers, you know, two teacher incomes in North Carolina. One's making 50, the other's making 50. After taxes, maybe they make 75, but they spend 74. So you guys are showing that this is possible, coach. And this is all about the fit position and being a middle income earner and a middle income family, you can still make it happen. And I'm really interested to move on after you make comments, coach, about net worth and the bucket strategies that she uses and you know how much she's investing per year. Yeah, I can't, I'm ready to get to all that too. I, you know, the only thing I would, I would do say to piggyback on that is it's a real pet peeve of ours, Allison, to hear two teacher income families or two, just two middle income earners, maybe a teacher and something else. And they say they can't make ends meet. And I'm and and it's almost like somebody scratching a chalkboard behind me when I hear it. Can I can I be can I be sensitive to that for a second, Coach? I, I, I you know so you're going to add something. Some, you're going to add some sensitivity here and and yes. and, and yeah. soften the blow. I was being a little yeah. Too I, the older I get, the more sensitive I'm becoming. Uh, you know, I'm just getting. You're soft. a nice guy. You're a nice guy. Um, I was going, Allison, I went too far in right there when I said <laughs> when I said chalkboard. But Dave just saw five but, listeners probably. But no, I do want to be sensitive to, I think there are different times in life. You know, there's an ebb and a flow. You know, if you're a two teacher income family and you have three kids under five and you're paying 15 or $1,700 a month in daycare, there might mm -hmm. be a period of time where you can't do that. But eventually those kids get to kindergarten and, you know, you can then have headway. But what a lot of us do is, you know, our kid, we're paying 750 a month in daycare. That one kid then goes to kindergarten. And now we view it as a green light to go get the $600 car payment. And instead of, you know, maybe taking half of what we were doing before and investing it, then the other half for the car payment, 
we go all in on the car that we've wanted and then our kids tear it up anyway. But I just want to, if I can, if I can push back just a little, yeah, we can do that. Not a lot, just a little pushback. I have a family member right now that's got, uh, that's got two children in, in daycare and, you know, and no doubt it's brutal, but can still be done though. True. Can still, True. Can still, I'm not, I, but I will say that that presents some challenges that are, and I'm sorry to interrupt there, Coach. But no, I was that's okay. That. But but I was just going to say that what I what I do think though is is when we hear the stories of people that are doing it, Allison, the way that you're doing it, I think that it inspires people. And what I'm finding more and more is that for me and for a lot of other people, they're not necessarily listening to the show uh, to learn new things. It's to be encouraged. And and so these stories are very encouraging. So uh, and 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 so anyway, I, that, that's all I would say. But I would love to get into your you know, kind of your investment strategies and net worth and projections and things like that. Sure. Um, so in terms of investing strategies, um, you know, I, uh, again, <laughs> I knew better. I knew to invest early. And so you would think that I invested a whole lot early on, right? I mean, I was coming out of a financial services career. That would make sense. But I didn't. But I invested a little bit. And we know that time is the most powerful tool that we have with compounding. Um, however, even with that, if we look in terms of net worth at just a few years ago, in December 2019, our total net worth as a family, right? So we were married by that point. So together as a family was $197,500. Um, and that's counting, you know, everything. Um, today, uh, our net worth now, I did not run my spreadsheet today, so it is not updated. But as of October 31st, um, our net worth instead is uh, approximately 824000 And so that's just within a few years. And so, you know, the thing is, is I knew to start early, but I didn't really do that. I mean, that's the thing I harp on my with my students and my own children, right? Now, an advantage, a huge, huge advantage I did have is I had zero college loan debt. So I started out at least on equal footing, um, not, not in the red. Um, and I recognize that that is not the case with um, many people. And you know that's again, something that I teach in terms of my students, in terms of weighing college decisions. You know, We use the book debt-free degree in class and all that um, and talk about how big of an advantage it is. So I made lots of mistakes financially and otherwise, right? Did not have, I mean, I'm 44, all right? So you all were kind enough to not ask my age, but I'm 44. And so at 41, I had a net worth of $197,500. Now that's not terrible, but that's not amazing or anything either, right? Um, and that was my total net worth. So a lot of that was house and not a lot of it was invest, investing. So what we've done since that time is we've just uh, poured everything into tax advantaged accounts. Now, unfortunately in my district, I do not have any Roth options, right? So I can, but I can choose two vehicles. And as you guys well know, both of these vehicles have their own issues. So I can choose a 457, and I can choose a 403B and I can actually ma max out both of those, all right, um, which is, 
you know, so like the 403B doesn't have as many great choices and the fees are higher. There's some issues there, but I've kind of run the numbers. I still come out ahead with it being a tax advantaged account. Um, so 20,500 you're putting into the 457. Yes. Perfect. Yeah. And then, well, and the other thing I've done is with, with the 403B, um, I also have with one of my side gigs, um, I do some teacher coaching for uh, an organization and they provide 401k, Roth 401k options and benefits to even part-time employees. And so I'm able to pair that with my 403b, like I can't go over, obviously, those are both in the same bucket. Um, but I do, I actually don't see hardly any of that money. Well, I think last week I earned five, the part that was deposited in my checking account was $5.28. So that, you know, was incredible, but essentially I'm deferring everything I can into that Roth 401k, right? And Tom, my husband also had had started a 457 plan. He was actually ahead of me uh, in terms of what he had versus I had. So when he retired, we rolled that over um, into an IRA. And then last year we decided to do a Roth conversion and take the hit um, because we had the money to pay for it for the taxes and, you know, taxes probably going up. Right. So, uh, so we, and we're still young enough where we have enough time to, to recover and it was worth the conversion for us. So uh, we're still very heavy and, um, in pre-tax income heavier than ideally I'd like, but uh, for retirement, but we now are up to one third of post-tax with the Roth 401k that I have. And also with the rollover we did last year or the conversion that we did last year. Sorry. So one of the things that we've run into on the show with a lot of people, a lot of the people that we've interviewed, they, they go to a Roth IRA first. They'll go to like you know, Vanguard, especially, or Fidelity, maybe, and or, so, or some someplace like that. Vanguard has been the most popular. And they open up the Roth IRA, and they, they go ahead and max that out, you know, before they even start on anything else. We've had at least, at least a few guests that have done that. I want to say several. Was there a reason why you decided not to go that option, since, you, since it would have been a Roth option? Well, I actually, um, I, we do personal Ross as well. In addition okay. to the 403B and 457, I apologize. I didn't mention that, but yeah, so we do that. And I actually do view that as kind of the first, first bucket, okay. Okay. Uh, the primary, because again, then I control those options. Whereas of course, in the 457 and the 403B, I have limited options and also higher fees. Right. So how much would you say you guys are investing as a couple per year? I don't know if you do any outside brokerage investing or anything like that. Would you say that you're investing over $60,000 a year as a family or somewhere around that? Um, it's, it's just under that, but almost. Um, okay. It's according to my spreadsheet, <laughs> it's around 57000 That is definitely how you make up for lost time. That's what I'm trying to do. <laughs> yeah, well, you're making it happen. I mean, you know, so you're north of eight hundred thousand dollars now. So you'll be, you'll be net. Well, you're probably already net worth millionaires actually with your home and and all that. I'm guessing. No, no, no. So the eight hundred, the the net worth figure I gave you was our full net worth. So that includes okay. our home. So we're not there yet. We're um we're just under um if you take out the home, we're just under five hundred thousand. We're at like four eighty four. 
Do you, you have were, any net worth goal? Uh, you know, if you were to, some people have a number that like, man, I would really love to be worth 3 million or 5 million or a deca millionaire. Is there any number that, that you really care to get? Um, not necessarily a specific number. And first of all, you know, although I know net worth includes like house and I don't ever include cars and net worth because, you know, depreciating assets, except recently. Right. But, um, but so I'm only looking at it in terms of my retirement account goals. And so with that, you know, um, with running the numbers, my goal is by the time I retire, um, in approximately nine years um, that I would have um, one, and we'll see if it's nine years. Like if I meet this goal, I'm telling myself that I have my permission and full opportunity to retire and take the little bit of hit because I won't quite be 55 yet. Um, And that number is about 1.5 million because we could easily um, continue to grow that without taking principal off. If I look at what we currently live on, um, it's actually less than we would get from both pensions combined at that point. Yeah. When you, when you live off of $30,000 a year, gosh, you don't need to have $5 million in an investment account, no. especially as, as the, as the kids move on to college and things like that. And, the, and they're out of the house you know, you could probably live off, live off a less than that, but it sounds like you do value travel and things like that. And the cool thing about the side gigs is a lot of times you can continue that even if you get out of education and make just enough money, or maybe be able to still have access to some of those pre-tax accounts. I was curious about the kids with the college and maybe what your stance was there. We've had some guests that say they want to pay for their kids college to set them up with no student loan debt and have the debt-free degree. We've had other guests on the show that say, Hey, I had student loans. My kids are going to have it too. Obviously, by the time they get to college, there's a good chance you'll be net worth millionaires. What's your stance on paying for your children's college? And if so, are you doing a 529? So I have not done the 529 because our horizon is too short, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, I'm looking at 2024, fall of 2024 with two kids in college. And um, and so I, what I've done is I've sat down. Of course, my kids have to listen to me talk about this, not only at home, but in class since they're in my class this year. But they did that to themselves. So no sympathy. Um, what, what I've done is I've sat them down and I've said, okay, we will pay this much per year. That's our max. So I would encourage you to go to a school where by the time you get scholarships, everything, you can be very close to that amount, um, or within that amount, um, you know, but ultimately an unfortunately, because I don't think you're ready for this at the age that they they will be making this decision. Ultimately, it's up to you. Like if you want to take out student loans, I've told you every reason in the world not to, right? But that's going to be your choice. And they're both very motivated not. So the number that we've given them is 20,000 a year. Um, And, um, you know, obviously, when you look at tuition, room and board, that doesn't that doesn't cover it completely uh, for really any of the schools that they've looked at, especially because they tend to be interested in smaller private schools. Uh, but what we have found is that the endowments are a lot better at those smaller private schools. So ultimately, they will probably be able to depend on 
where their list moves to be under that $20,000. And so they will be able to uh, go to school have and hit, have no debt. Have they hit you with the, um, you give me the $20,000, I'm going to go to uh, community college, and then I'm going to take that $20,000 and I'm going to invest it. Uh, and I'm going to finish up college, not only debt-free, but with a substantial amount of money in my investment account. Yes. My oldest one, I told you, he's the one <laughs> who got him. me to Good take him, him to all 50 states too, right? Uh, so I'm pretty confident he's, he'll be successful. I'm hoping it's legal uh, because he's very conniving. <laughs> he's very sweet too, but uh <laughs> But anyway, sounds like my um, son who's nine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Nine. Yeah. Mine's at least but, <laughs> but anyway, so with them, um, you know, we've talked about community college and how that is an option and can be looked at. Um, they, they both are bowlers, right? They're high school bowlers and bowling teams. I know aren't real prevalent necessarily. I don't know. Do you all have any high school bowling teams in North Carolina? That you None know that of? I'm aware of. Not that I None know that of. Aware. Okay. I'd so be the see. coach if they had one, though. I'd take oh, that. Oh, well, see, you can start one because um, you need more to do, right? Uh, yeah. So in, in our area, bowling is actually pretty big, and um, it's now an NIA men's championship sport. All right. So that means that they're for NAIA schools in particular, uh, there's some money. Obviously, you're not going to go full scholarship on bowling. All right. But there's some money associated with it. Right. And they so they really want to bowl and they potentially depend on what school they end up with. If it's a smaller school where they can be dual sport athletes and bowl and play baseball, that would be their ideal world. Um, And so that makes them less enamored with the um, option of going to community college. So what they are doing, though, is they're taking like my class, which is dual credit through uh, and they pay zero dollars for because of uh, a grant that is given to all high school students in Kentucky where they can take classes like that for free. Um, and they're going to be taking some additional ones to eat away at some of the gen ed requirements, because we've also talked about how many kids start college who are perfectly talented, good kids who don't finish. And so we're using more of the front end loading some community college classes to meet general education requirements um, to then help ensure that it really is a four-year degree, not a six-year degree or a never degree. Yeah. If you can take advantage of those dual enrollment, I know at our high school, we have a lot of our high flyer students that they're graduating with 28 to 36 credit hours before they ever step foot in a four-year university, which enables them maybe to have their master's in four years when they graduate from a university, or, you know, if they change their major three or four times, they can still graduate on time, which is a really big benefit. Well, and a caveat there, because I don't want, you know, that will almost sound bad. I almost said, I don't want my people to, th- I don't want people to think my kids are high flyers. No, that's not true. <laughs> I do want them to think that, but um, I teach at a school with a lot of very talented students. My student, my children, all right, so my boys, my sons um, are not necessarily academically the highest flyers. They make good grades because they have a very good work ethic. Um, but when it comes to, as, you know, big assessments like the ACT, SAT, uh, we're, not, we're not getting money for that. All right, let's just be clear. Uh, And so even though they're not the highest performing students academically in the school or anywhere close to it, they're more 
you know, just, I would say above average, but like maybe barely. Um, in fact, one of them, obviously I won't say which one, his ACT scores, quite frankly, are below average, right? Um, but they're still able to, again, have a high work ethic. And instead of taking all of these classes necessarily during the school year, when they have so much other stuff, we're also looking at like this summer, um, them doing some community college classes and things like that. So those are opportunities that people can look to as well. It doesn't have to be all just like, hey, I have a really, really top flying kid who's going to be like a brain surgeon or that sort of thing. I teach kids. Some of my students are like that. Um, but for my own students or for my own children, who are also my students, that's not the case. And they're still able to take advantage of those opportunities. And so I'd encourage people to look at those opportunities for your own kids, even if they're not the ones who maybe the counseling office is identifying as, hey, your kid's amazing, they should do this. There are still those opportunities for the average to slightly, just slightly above average high school kid as well. That's good stuff. That's good stuff. Yeah, that's so great. We, so we mentioned, um, we mentioned, you know, the three uh, imperatives of the fit position. We mentioned, you know, be frugal. And we mentioned the third one, be a, a lifelong learner. I want to kind of touch on, you know, you're investing a lot of money and especially right now, the stock market has been taking some hits. And so you have to be fearless to do this. I mean, to, to put the kind of money in that you're putting in, you really do have to be fearless. J.L. Collins talks about that in his book, The Simple Path to Wealth, that you have to have the guts to stay in. My football coach in college used to say you have to be a wild horse rider. Um, because you have to be able to, you, you have to have the courage to run into danger and, and, and take it on. So what, how do you account for that? You and your husband are absolutely in, you're investing wild horse riders. Uh, how do you, how do you do that in the face of so much going on? Well, my husband runs into fires and so it doesn't really seem that, <laughs> <laughs> um, but actually the market kind of scares them sometimes, ironically, like I'm the one who's like, no, it's fine. Um, so, you know, there's obviously the philosophy that I try to adhere to, which is I am investing a lot right now. So in terms of my personal, um, wealth, it's probably good timing for me that the market's taken a hit, right? Because this is when I am pouring in so much. And so I'm able to buy things on sale, right? Um, here's the other way that I talk to my students about. And I tell them, I don't know if this is really optimistic or really pessimistic, but it's kind of both. I believe that if you're investing in high quality investments for the long term, right, that history shows that they'll go up. If something happens... And all of like our big stable companies in the U.S. just go belly under. It really doesn't matter what I'm invested in. And there's nothing I can do because it means the entire economy is trash. And not only would our economy then be tanked, so would the entire world economy. And so in that case, it doesn't really matter where I have stuff. So again, I don't know if that's really optimistic or really pessimistic. It's kind of a blend of both, but that's sort of how I view things. It's realistic. I think I think it's realistic. So if I could ask just a follow-up question, um, do, you, um, do you guys favor mutual funds, index funds, if I, if I might ask that question, you know, just kind of what, you know, just in general, what you tend to favor when it comes to investment products? Um, I have a combination. So I have just some straight up S&P 500 index funds, um, especially because that's one of the options I have within 
um, I'm 457. And so that helps provide some lower fees within that 457 than some of the other options. But then I also have um, some in what I would call, obviously, I'm not going to say I'm invested in low quality mutual funds, that would be silly. But uh, what I would view as high quality mutual funds with strong track records. Um, I, um, you know, I've, in terms of investing, you know, I'm not someone who is, is I'm someone who's going to invest in things like fairly boring mutual funds, right? Um, I'm not someone who is going to be a day trader. I'm also not someone who's going to buy Bitcoin um, or any of the other various investments, I say with air quotes, that are out there. Even though I have some friends that have, that have supposedly been successful in that, um, that's, that's just not my style. I have to understand what I'm investing in and I have to uh, feel confident in its long-term performance in order to, like you said, ride the storm out, that sort of thing. And so um, my dad is all an individual stock guy and he's pretty brilliant um, and he's been very successful with that. But he spends, he's retired now and that's what he spends all of his time doing is researching companies. And he makes really good picks and he doesn't make real risky picks. He like observes things in terms of market condition. He reads every news story he can about companies he's considering. He like really intimately knows those companies. So for someone like that, who has larger sums to invest than I do and has a lot more time, um, you know, I'm also not someone who, you know, and like I, I'm a Ramsey listener and follower, but um, like for my dad, the individual stock thing um due to the amount of money he has, he essentially creates his own mutual fund, right? Um, and so, um, you know, that's something that I like the idea of tinkering with, but I don't have, I don't have the um, time nor um, the wealth in, a, in like an IRA rolled over where I have that freedom at this point in time. So I was curious, if you were running your calculations in an investment projection calculator, what percent do you base yours on? You know, Ramsey would say, run it off 12%. Uh, I generally run my stuff off 8%. Um, That's while what I'm I do is eight. Eight. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I use eight and I figure, you know, maybe as I get less aggressive, once I'm maybe 16 above, I might run it off five or 6% after that, but I kind of view everything up to 60 is 8%. Um, mm-hmm. And that's all great stuff, man. We've learned a lot tonight, coach. Actually, if I could, if I could just say, this is a plug for the investment um, seminar. If you listen to everything she just said, and you're like, I'm lost, I have no idea what all the, you know, I I would say you're a prime candidate to sign up for the, the investment for beginners. Uh, So, so if if there was anything that she just said, or especially if there was a lot of what she just said that you're like, I have no idea what was being talked about. You're someone who would benefit a great, because we're going to cover all that stuff in the, yeah, the 20th, 20th of November at 7 PM Eastern time. And uh, there's a link on our social media page on Facebook to sign up for that. So you have a thousand plus teachers listening to you right now, Allison, what advice as we close this out, this is going to be our last comments here. What advice would you give the teachers when it comes to money? I, I don't know if it's the same up in Kentucky where you are, that we've heard a lot of other teachers say that, you know, it's kind of a woe is me. We don't get paid enough money. There's no way we can ever build wealth. What advice would you give to the teachers out there um, to build some hope? Well, I would say because 
I don't think there's any teacher that's overpaid um, at this point in time. So obviously I've been blessed on the salary schedule I am on compared to most people. Um, but even then I would argue that I'm underpaid uh, for what I do. And so I think that that's common in the teaching profession. So because of that, you have to, you really have to think about retirement. You really do have to pay yourself first. So all of those philosophies in terms of investing become actually that much more important. Um, so budgeting, you know, just basic budgeting. If I'm thinking that I don't have enough, I don't have financial security, well, then you're the person that should the most. So to kind of make it more teacher-friendly language, think about your most disorganized kid in your class. Well, that's the kid that needs structure and organizational strategies the most because they just, their brain doesn't naturally work that way. They can't handle it themselves. So the same thing, like if you are struggling with money, as the even more of a reason you have to have systems in place, just like you would have for your kids that are struggling, you then have to implement that for you. That's great advice. Great advice. A Allison, you're a rock star. You've been an awesome <laughs> guest and uh, this this episode is going to go out and a lot of people are going to be encouraged. A lot of people are going to learn a lot. I can hear people right now taking notes from some of the stuff you said so they can go look it up, uh, which is what we always hope. Man, it was just just really great content all throughout this episode. So thank you so much for coming on. Being thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thank you for being so transparent and so organized. Way to be the head of the class and not be one of the disorganized, <laughs> chaotic students. So we appreciate you being a great student and a great teacher and uh, we we're just so thankful that you came on the show. And thank you to all the listeners for joining us on this week's version of the Fit Educator Podcast. We hope you join us for next week. And remember, someone is sitting in the shade today because they planted a tree a long time ago. Take care, everybody.